Tyson Yunkerporter has a podcast called The Other Others. During a rambling conversation with techie expert Jordan Hall, an aspect of traditional Hawaiian culture is discussed. This is, if your shadow falls onto an elder, instant death results. I don't know any details, but this is awesomely confronting knowledge about a different way of living in human society. Imagine the orientation this discipline would impose on someone born into a tribal situation. To be always conscious of your relationship with the sun, with the moon, with all other people and with everything in your environment and what that level of awareness would translate to in every other aspect of your being. Now this is taking life seriously. When your shadow is counted, you are living literally and metaphorically as an expanded, connected being. And I write this aware that I'm possibly incapable of living with this degree of awareness. How could I be? My life doesn't depend on it. But I have reached a point where I am, at least, awed by the implications. Before delving into Indigenous knowledge systems, I would have experienced uncomprehending horror rather than uncomprehending awe in the face of the story of the Elder and the Shadow. So what does taking life seriously look like? I'm pretty inspired by the Ukrainians. As the noose tightens around activities, including access to my father in his aged care facilities here in Perth, Western Australia, 130,000 Russian troops have amassed on the border of Ukraine under the rule of a very unpredictable man. You've probably heard about this. Putin positioned himself as a champion of what we in the West loosely call firm family values. God knows what he really thinks. But adherence to religion, clearly defined gender roles and his hold on power are on the agenda in Russia. He wants the Ukrainians back in the arms of the motherland. The West, of course, is amassing its own troops and threatening sanctions and other dire consequences. The reports say that the citizens are under threat are going ice skating with their kids, calmly preparing for war and siege with a distinct air of business as usual while the world looks on with dread and wonder. By the time you listen to these words, Things will possibly be getting tenser, but the inspiration remains that this is taking life seriously. Knowing you are facing a radically unknowable tomorrow, to be able to make the most of the day, seems to me to be both admirable and brave. In terms of me taking life seriously, I think my recent experiences are giving me a hint Last month was day one of my father's new residency in his luxurious seafront aged care facility. It was, at times, confronting. At dinner, in a beautifully appointed room, my father and I sat together and looked around in stunned silence at the people gathered. Gargoyle faces, decrepit bodies, zombie behaviour. I could barely tear my eyes away from a face that had grown to be a caricature of what is human, a hooked nose almost meeting a curled chin, like a puppet from a Punch and Judy show. After a while, Dad observed with a distinctly Ukrainian air of understatement, everyone here is very old. Dress it up how you like, 
extreme old age is confronting, especially when it's concentrated into one room. There was a wall of inert bodies, fully stretched out on wheeled beds. Human wrecks, but no doubt sentient beings, able to eat, to respond, to connect. They are as helpless as babies, but only love or the mostly brown-skinned young women tending to their needs could help them now. While most humans would rush to help an infant, I could imagine not many of us would care to get up close and personal with these people. One, the terror of being one of these helpless creatures would make us keep our distance. We are looking at our own future. Two, the distaste that such an obvious and compelling lack of prospects engenders. There is no hope, no future, no happy ever after here. Just breath and a breath and another breath, the unvarnished here and now. Well, standing back and theorising isn't going to get me far. These are, after all, humans. They have a capacity to respond, to touch, to see, to smell. So best to get down and dirty, or to be really grateful that I don't have to get down and too dirty. Anyway, this is serious stuff. So how do I incorporate this new perspective into life's ending into my blithe day-to-day existence? I was trying to think of a Western civilization corollary to this idea of the elder and the shadow. Are there areas marked don't go there in terms of a life and death engagement with respect and levels of knowledge in the culture I was brought up in? Was my curiosity ever stepped on or curbed or headed in different directions for the good of my culture? And I mean apart from the socially engendered effects of education geared towards rote learning and tram track boredom. That's another story. But I can think of a time when I created my own reality and applied my own secret discipline. It was individually crafted, outside of the shared culture, and totally unsupported by my fellow beings. And it is in neurotic, life-shrinking counterpoint to this story of the elder and the shadow. When I was living in St Kilda in Melbourne in my 20s, I started picking up lackey bands on the street on my way to art school. Harmless, until it somehow over days or weeks grew to be an action crucial to my well-being. It progressed to the point where I would have to retrace my steps to pick up an elastic band because the sense of impending doom that would result if I didn't pick it up became stronger than my rational understanding of the action as an unnecessary act. Luckily, I started to experience my lackey band action as neurotic and life-denying, and I managed to break the connection between the sense of crisis that not picking it up would induce to walk on by without causing myself psychic injury. So this became an unhappy but an instructive period in my life when I was forced to acknowledge the thin gauze lying between me and an involuntary institutionalised lifestyle. Perhaps it was because it was in St Kilda in the 80s. This was a suburb that contained cheap accommodation and boarding houses. Official attitudes to the treatment of mental illness shifted at this time and people were released from institutions to become citizens. While I mightn't have been aware of this structural change, I was aware of the increased number of people behaving in odd ways 
at the non-glamorous end of Chapel Street. There were many souls chain-smoking, and some subject to jaw-cracking involuntary mouth movements that I was told was a side effect of medicine used in depression and bipolar disease, and many muttered to themselves. This was pre-mobile phones when muttering to oneself in public was understood as a signature of the mentally unstable. I'm not sure that this story's got anything to do with the dire consequences of a shadow crossing an elder in traditional tribal culture, but it comes to me because I'm trying to say something about the seriousness of contemporary life. I'll leave the story standing because I think it says something about the isolation and neuroticism that our culture's tendency towards individualism rather than collective care can induce. Can anyone listening to this dust off a moment in their lives when they fell into a pothole of their own mind's making? I'm happy hanging out on this thin ice on my own if I have to. I can just blame Western society. But I'll also give thanks to whatever accident of nature or nurture kept me out of a psych ward during this period. Since living in Perth for longer periods, what I've been writing about shifted and my life has shifted. I seem to have gone from soil and human health to soul and human health. It's still all about regeneration in my mind and when the season breaks, I'm going to get back on the land. But the regenerative agricultural work has become more urban. It's about the plants and systems that I connect with in the gardens and landscapes of Perth. There's a sturdy European-style conifer just outside Dad's flat in his retirement village. The common name is Cyprus. These types of trees belong to the yew family, and it's one of those neatly clothed and shapely evergreen conifers that belong in colder climates but seem to survive well in our part of the world. They stand guard, contained and dense in different spots across the village, holding huge amounts of shadow and a rich un-Australian palette of dark greens to inky blacks with the occasional nod towards yellow. To me, they're discreet and mysterious and secretive. They carry with them the whiff of old Europe and a graveyard, ancient spirits. Each branch of the cypress shifts with the wind and it doesn't break apart the variegated green form. If you peel back one of these hands of green, you'll find a branch curled like an arm holding a soft internal cushion of dried brown fallen needles. When I discovered this hidden cache of dried litter, I quickly filled a bucket to use it as mulch. Hopefully the cypress are not as toxic to life as their cousins, the yew trees. Well, my seedlings seem to be surviving, so all good so far. I read that the Romans believed that yews grew in hell. It's thought that yew trees were planted on the graves of plague victims to protect and purify the dead. And they're also in churchyards to stop commoners from grazing their cattle on church ground, as yew is extremely poisonous to livestock. Also, because they're extremely long-lived, they've been linked with immortality. The cypress trees are a really powerful presence, perhaps because they are so antithetical to the most common scribbly gum trees and shrubs of the Australian bush. They fling their limbs in all directions and they shed leaves and bark and shadow and sunlight with gay abandon. 
refusing all but the most dappled and uncertain of shade. Do you remember me talking about Zach Bush, MD? I did a podcast last year called Thank You Monsanto in his honour. He's a US-based doctor who put together the story of glyphosate and its common product, Roundup, and its insidious long-term effect on human health, particularly gut health, going on to work with farmers to help them make the connection between soil and human health. Zach worked for years developing cancer treatments and tells us that chemotherapy solutions are made from compounds harvested from plants. These compounds are essential to human health if ingested, as nature intended, in tiny amounts every day from the food we eat. But because our soils have been so deadened and augmented by additives, they no longer contain the diversity of microorganisms necessary to grow plants with the full complement of processes that support full human health. I mentioned this because anti-cancer compounds are harvested from the foliage of the yew and used in modern medicine. And I'm again struck with the weirdness of a society that strips the soil of its capacity to grow nutritious food, reducing the resilience and health of its citizens, and then offers cures to the resulting diseases based on toxic doses of these very same compounds that have been destroyed through extractive agricultural practices. Well, we don't eat yew trees, but I mention it because I'm astonished all over again by this paradox. Poor Mother Earth. But there will be a reckoning. Oh, hang on. There is a reckoning. The plague. Environmental disaster breeds its own brands of corrective viruses. But we whitefellas, we're clearly not serious about life. My attraction to the yew and other conifers is part of my particular genetic consciousness. Thousands of generations wedded deep to the north northern hemisphere. I'm descended from the indigenous earth-centred Celtic folk from Ireland, Wales, Scotland, England and Scandinavia. Perhaps I'm drawn to these trees on a deep level and should acknowledge this attraction as an unconscious gift from my ancestors. The Norfolk Island pine, while a fabulous presence in my WA life, hasn't quite got that mysterious internal power of the cypress and its spookier cousins. But they have presence and their own secrets. I was shocked when I first saw one of the seeds of the Norfolk Island pine sitting on my front verge. This one was the size of a coconut, weighed about a kilo, and was so prickly and dense I could barely carry its weight in my unprotected hand. It seems strange now, but it took me a while to work out what this thing was, as these monster seed balls usually hidden from view dozens of metres in the air. I had lived in the shadow of these trees for years without ever seeing one, or at least one anywhere near this size. It seems that Norfolk Island pines are networked. They all decide together when it's time to propagate themselves. So in midwinter, when this moment is reached, these huge seed balls start exploding. And for days, every house on our street in Geraldton experiences an intense clattering as seeds rain down on roof, pathway, road and garden. Soon after this, 
all nearby gardens and all uncleared gutters start sprouting baby pines, which is obviously what they're looking for. By my observation, this wild sex event happens roughly every 10 years amongst the various communities of Norfolk Island pines of the Perth and Geraldton coastal suburbs I know. A few winters ago, it happened. The seeds rained down and I had a brilliant business idea. I took it upon myself to dig up and pot 50 of these seedlings. People are prepared, I was told, to pay good money for a Christmas tree in a pot. There's a catch, of course. You have to keep them alive over summer and then during subsequent summers because I've found out these plants really take their time growing. After a couple of seasons, I took the 30-odd survivors to the drylands permaculture farm, knowing I wouldn't be home enough to keep them alive and healthy over another summer. And I'm hoping there will eventually be a payoff for the nursery. Incidentally, there's much worry about the health of the grand old conifers in Perth and Geraldton. Cottesloe is losing trees to an attacking fungus called pine canker. And some of the old peppermint trees that live in the streets around Claremont and Swanbourne are also looking really unhealthy. Why has this fungus taken hold? In Geraldton, we can blame corellas as well as fungus and wild events in the weather. But is it possible that in an environment with a much reduced rainfall and the overuse of underground water, the levels have dropped? So the cumulative effects of the changing climate have weakened some of these established trees and made them pest magnets. Anyway, getting back to Tyson and Jordan, their long-ranging conversation underlined the importance of the word protocols. And this is something I'm only just starting to get my head around. They were discussing the centrality of protocols in terms of indigenous groups moving into the creation of software and a new iteration, a new generation of the web. Is it possible, they asked, to create software where the programs are predicated on placing their abstract computations within a context, which means within the limits of human and ecological reality? This is where the machine's computations are halted or influenced at the point where they negatively impact the real life of other beings and other ecosystems. Look, my attempts to explain these high-level tech thoughts are possibly laughable, but I feel, rightly or wrongly, that I have an intuitive grasp of the idea. Try to imagine the World Wide Web being powered by relational rather than transactional considerations. A web for Team Human. A web that acknowledges limitations to economic growth based on limitations of the use of natural resources. This is, after all, what they were thinking about when they started all of this in the 60s. Well, it's food for thought, isn't it? And let me give thanks to Douglas Rushkoff, an IT expert who is always supportive of our species. His podcast, Team Human, is a continuing delight. <laughs>